take our Bibles, turn to Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. We've been in this final vision of the book of Amos for a couple of weeks now, and we're turning our attention tonight to the final passage of this final vision. Amos chapter 9. beginning in verse 11. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. I've got two phrases that I'm going to mention to you. They are the same, but different. So I want you to see if you can tell and what is the common feature and then what is the distinction. So here's phrase number one. You better finish those chores before your father gets home. Number one. Number two. I think these good grades deserve some ice cream. You better finish these chores before your father gets home. And I think these good grades deserve ice cream. So can somebody tell me, how are they the same? Anyone? All right, they're an incentive. All right, so yes, both of them are a type of motivation, right? So then how are they different? All right, one is a positive incentive and one is a negative. They may be autobiographical. All right? So, yeah, yeah, I mean, the one, obviously, the first one, you better get those chores done. And that, and that could be, you know, there could be any number of, of ways you could say something similar that I look out there and I know you all heard this, these things, right? Something like, don't make me turn this car around, right? So that's, that's another example. You know, any, any way in which a parent motivates a child through the promise of negative consequences, right? Well, that's what that is. You, you better get this done before your dad gets home. So that, that can be one way to motivate. Well, then, then there's the positive one. The, the idea, well, you know, you got good grades, go get ice cream. So what is, what is the hope? Well, maybe next time you'll get good grades again with the thought that maybe you'll get ice cream. Now, now both of these types of motivation... Well, they have their place, right? We've used them both. 
And by the way, this isn't just something that pertains to children, right? We face both kinds of motivations even as adults, whether in your working world or relational world or, you know, there's a number of informal ways in which you are motivated to act a certain way for fear of negative outcome and for hoping to get positive outcome. Again, they both have their place. They can both be effective. And so it's not a surprise that when we turn to the Bible, we see them being used. God uses both of these, doesn't he? You read the books of like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Leviticus being a challenging one. Deuteronomy also having its challenges, but maybe not quite as hard as Leviticus. But you read those and you will find this kind of language. God saying, fidelity to the covenant will yield blessing. Live in light of the promises that I have made to you, even availing yourself of the the features of the law intended to deal with your sin. God never intended for Israel to live perfect in their obedience to the law. He knew they couldn't do that. So he gave them a means for dealing with their sin. God's expectation for them was not perfect obedience, but to live according to the provisions of the law. And if they did that, blessing, right? Land flowing with milk and honey. They would enjoy the best of the best. Likewise, violate it. Disobey the covenant, reject faithfulness, and you will endure the curses of disobeying the covenant. It, it's, it's not like Israel was going into this thing with, with blinders on. It's not like she could claim ignorance. God was very clear. This is, this is how you are to live. There's, there's positive reinforcement, motivation, as well as negative. Now, by the time we turn to the minor prophets, we're thinking a lot about the negative, right? In fact, the minor prophets are experts, <laughs> at the negative elements of motivation. I mean, that they are a lion's share of their material is addressing judgment. In fact, really, you could say the minor prophets, more often than not, are actually declaring to the people, time's up. This is it. Now you will face the negative consequences. But that's not always the case. Not all of the minor prophets is filled with this, and Amos has his fair share. In fact, the vast majority of Amos is a pretty heavy, meaty, weighty kind of, of work that, that, that really you, you feel like you've got to slog through it a little bit, right? That's what we've been doing for nine chapters, all right? Finding our way through a book that has some really graphic imagery, some heartbreaking imagery, not only about the sins of the people, but the judgment that is going to come upon them. I mean, really extreme, I say extreme, really severe forms of judgment that are going to come upon them. But that's not the entirety of the book. In fact, last week we got a little bit of a glimpse that every now and then there is this ray of light that breaks in. God does not leave his people without hope, right? He does warn them, and he'd warned them long ago. And indeed, Amos is saying, all right, those chickens are about to come home and roost on you. But there is this ray of light, and we saw it last week, that statement that God makes there in chapter 9, like verses 9 and 10, uh, where, where God says, I'm, I'm going to sift you with the nations. Now, now first glance, that, 
that, that might read with a little bit of heft, but we know God has made them a promise. Yes, judgment's going to come upon the sinners. Those who think that they have done nothing wrong and the judgment's not going to come upon them. No, God's going to bring the full force of his judgment to bear upon them. But then he said, but there's going to be a remnant to remain. I will not utterly destroy Israel. I'm going to sift Israel. And sifting is a painful process. Even for the grain, the good grain that's left behind, sifting the grain, the grain pays a bit of a price for that. So even the faithful remnant will will feel the pain of God's judgment. But that, that is with the greater promise to come. That God has, has declared, God has promised to Israel, this is not the final word. I'm not going to utterly destroy you. It's a greater glory coming. Now, this then takes up the rest of the book. So verses 11 through 15, now we have an entire passage that's nothing but good news. And that, boy, that's a good way to end a minor prophet, because not all of them in that way, all right? Not all of them end with this kind of bright, shining light. Boy, right here at the end. This final vision from God, keeping in mind that God is standing at the altar in Bethel. This is the vision that Amos has. And God has given out one final word of the judgment to come. But then to conclude it all, he gives this final word of encouragement to the faithful remnant, to that small group of men and women in Israel who were, who were trying to live in light of the covenant. These who are trying to be faithful. And God gives a promise to them that they will not be utterly destroyed. There's going to be a day of restoration. And these words, I think, are important. So as God, is, God is encouraging this remnant, in essence, to endure the judgment to come. This is kind of what we noted last week. When God moves in judgment upon a body of people, when He moves in judgment upon a nation... Those who remain faithful should realize they will end up bearing up under the consequences of a nation being judged. What I mean by that, this, and this is what, it, so this is what Israel is going to face, these faithful men and women, they are going to go into exile. They are going to be attacked by the Assyrians. They, they are going to find themselves scattered. They will bear some pain and suffering because of God's judgment against the nation. But this is a word of encouragement that they would endure. God has not abandoned his promises. And so in spite of the condition of the world today, we as God's people, we can persevere in faith because there is the promise of a greater kingdom. God's promise through Amos to Israel is a promise that still stands. It, it is a promise that has not been fulfilled in all of its fulfillment possibilities. And so as, as we study it, this is how we're going to consider it tonight. We'll probably finish it up next week. That we also, we can be encouraged to persevere. So we are encouraged, I would say, to persevere when we understand the nature of this kingdom. What is this kingdom like? What, are, what is God promising in this greater glory to come? So you got blanks to fill in. Four. Four identifying marks of this kingdom to come now, before we even get to the first one, let me remind you of something. Keep in mind that as we study the minor prophets, and in fact, I've done a whole sermon on this. When we study the minor prophets and we come to these passages, 
that seem to speak to prophecies that are way far out there. We recognize that these prophetic passages have what have been described, I didn't make this up, what have been described as near fulfillment and far fulfillment prophecies. Again, we've talked about this already. In fact, really, there's almost like three stages of it. In some cases, some of the prophecies, and I think this last one does this, that that there are prophetic promises made that God then fulfills in part as a foreshadowing of what is going to be the greater and final fulfillment. He gives a bit of a glimpse of what it's going to look like to make good on the promise that he's made. So, in many cases, the prophecy that's given finds a near fulfillment in future events in Israel's history. For example, God promises here that the day is going to come when I'll call Israel back out of captivity. Do you recall a book that we studied that had to do with that? Anyone? Want to tell me what that was? Anyone? Oh, you're hurting my feelings, all right. Right, the book of Ezra, right? Okay, so there's a sense in which there are, verse, there are words out of this prophecy that have received partial fulfillment. Now, have they been fulfilled in full? Well, surely not. We, all those verses that we read, would we say that all of that is in place right now in its fullness? Well, of course not. So there's a near fulfillment, and then we know that many of these promises then receive more, even more fulfillment at the time of Christ. We'll see that in this passage. And then we see that there is then a final fulfillment that comes at the very end of time. And there is no doubt, Amos 9, 11 through 15, is taking us all the way to the very end and the final kingdom that is to come. So as we study through this, we're going to try and note the ways in which that fleshes out in the promises that are made here. All right, so four features of this kingdom to come. Number one, it is a messianic kingdom. It is a messianic kingdom, which I recognize is kind of a fancy way to say it's going to be about Jesus. And you say, Pastor, why didn't you just make that as the point? Because that wouldn't have fit the form of the other three points. All right? Okay? You all know me. It's all got to fit. But that's still the right way to say it. That, that right off the bat, we can tell from the language that's being used here, Amos, God, through the prophet Amos, is giving us this promise of the coming Messiah. That part of this greater kingdom is one that goes beyond just that which is ruled by a mere human king. Now, that there is, a, there is a Savior, a Christ, a Messiah, who is being promised here. So now, notice how this is described in verse 11. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now, he begins here with this phrase, verse 11, on that day. This is a common phrase, on that day, behold the day is coming, the day of the Lord. I think all these are talking about the same day. I think this is a reference to the day of the Lord. With the day of the Lord having two features to it, we've talked about this before, the feature of judgment on one hand, and then the feature of promised fulfillment on the other. Good news is, for the most part up to this point in Amos, we've been looking at the hammer falling, right? God's judgment coming upon the people. But now we have then the other side of the story. 
this promise of a, of a greater day to come. And you can tell right after that phrase, on that day I will raise up. Even, even if you don't go any further than that, you can already tell, wow, this is good news, right? This already feels better than the rest of the book up to this point. And what's he going to raise up? The tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. Now that's the New King James, he uses the word tabernacle. Other translations will use a word like booth, tent. There might be an outlier translation out there that would use a word like hut. There's, there's also one that, that uses the word succoth, which is a city and, and would have a whole other way of being understood. I think that's kind of an outlier way to, to do it. The, the, the New King James, using the word tabernacle, we understand that word, right? The word tabernacle we understand it as a tent. Well, your first thought may be the church you go to. But the other thing that we hear about when we hear the word tabernacle, we think of the, the tabernacle, right? We think of that structure that God first had established as the place where he would be worshipped by his people. Instructions given to Moses and it's, you know, it was made to be transportable. And we actually, several years ago in our study of the book of Exodus, studied the tabernacle and all of its parts. That's not what he's referring to. That's why maybe this word, that's why the New King James using the word tabernacle here might be a little confusing because he's not talking about that tabernacle. At least I don't think that he is. He's not talking about the tabernacle as the place of worship. Instead, he's using this as a way to describe the house of David. But he's not using the word house. So I think it's best to use the word that I think is best here is that this is a tent or a hut. In fact, I read one description of the word that likened it to, to a lean-to that a shepherd would be able to build quickly. If he's out in the, in the field with a sheep and he needs some kind of coverage from elements that have gone bad, then he would be able to just kind of put together this shack, all right? Just quickly put together a, a, a really simple, basic covering or sh hut for himself in order to get out from under uh, of, of, of the elements. Now, the reason why this is an important kind of description here, th there's two things going on. One, the reference here to David. Well, that's hard to miss, right? It's not just anybody's hut or anybody's tent. It is the tent of David. It is the house of David. So this promise then takes us back to 2 Samuel, the promise that God made to David. You will have offspring that will sit on a forever throne and will rule over a forever kingdom. There'll be no end to it. And of course, we know that is a prophecy not about Solomon. Does Solomon sit on a forever throne? No, in fact, when he's done, what happens? Country divides, right? And then now we've got a split nation. We've got the ten tribes and the nation of Israel. And then we've got the bottom two, Judah and Benjamin. And so they both have two different kings. They have two different places of worship. This is the issue right square in the face in the book of Amos. Now, obviously, this is pointing then to Christ. These words even come up in the Christmas story, don't they? That this is the fulfillment of the promise. So already using the language of the, the house, the tent of David, is just rich with messianic overtones. It's hard to miss. That's what he's talking about. However, it is interesting that he uses the language of a hut. In other words, he doesn't say the palace of David, right? 
He's saying something really specific here. By this point, he is saying even the Davidic line itself, even the house of David is a broken house. Even those, and, and remember, Amos is from Judah, even that lineage of David. Truth is, you could argue, though there were times in Israel's history that they may have occupied more land than during the time of David, or maybe had more monetary might than during the time of David, I think there's very little debate that every Jew believed David's reign was the golden era, right? This this was when we were at our best. It's been bad ever since. Like we've never gotten back to it. And the truth is, even to this day, right? They've never gotten back to it. And so, and so to, to refer here to David, but to refer to his line as a hut, it's a really descriptive way of saying here, here we have this, this house, well, that's also in a bit of shambles, but he makes a promise. This hut, this barely surviving line, it's fallen down. So not only is it a hut, but it's a fallen down hut, all right? So it's a shack. It's a shack that you can't even get under anymore. So this is a really broken set of situations. But God promises, I will repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. It is a profound promise that's being made. In spite of what has been chapter after chapter after chapter of really weighty words of judgment, God says, I'm not done with you yet. Is that not amazing, by the way? Do you remember our study in books like Hosea and Joel and now in Amos? Do you recall the kinds of sins these people were engaging in? And we're not talking about some kind of, you know, oh, I had a moment where I just let myself go. I don't know what happened. We're talking generation after generation after generation. People who want to say, even after reading Amos, the people who want to say, yeah, see, God, God's just a God shooting down fire from heaven. I don't think so. I only see a profound mercy and grace that rivals even the most grace-filled passages of the New Testament. I find the exact same thing in the Old. Here is a God who endured patiently with a wicked, stubborn, stiff-necked people. And even here, when they are in the throes of what is an utter abandonment of the covenant, God says, I'm not done. I've made a promise to you. I will fulfill it. Oh, the nation's going to be sifted. Make no doubt about that. God has promised, I, I will keep all of my promises. Now, we know, on, again, on this side of the New, New Testament, this promise then is fulfilled in Christ. We know this is a promise of the, of the Messiah that is to come. And that though we know during the New Testament period that the people of, of say, the first century in Jesus' day, they're going to misunderstand this, that they're looking for David 2.0, right? 
I mean, they're looking for David, David. They're, they're looking for a guy. They're looking, they're looking for, you know, a, a guy who can, who's going to be on a real horse with a real sword, right? Who's going to do some real killing of some real Romans. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for a king who will reign as they perceive a king should reign. That's not who's going to come yet. That in the first century, that's not who shows up. Yet that is, that is partial fulfillment of this very promise. The day is coming when I will raise this house up. Now, this is still pointing us then to the future because though the Messiah has come and the kingdom has come and that kingdom has taken up residence in our heart and Christ does rule and reign, is there anyone out there still committing sin? Like one or two people? Is there anyone out there that is snubbing their nose at God? Is there anyone out there living as if there will be no judgment for them? Yeah, yeah, we got a handful of those, all right? You, you can find their names on the internet, all right? Yeah, there are some of those people that are out there. In other words, we recognize that the fullness of the kingdom has not yet come because there are those who are still living according to another kingdom. And so this promise then points us all the way to the end, this day when Christ will return, and he will be on a horse, and he will have a sword, <laughs> And there will be judgment, but there will also be the establishment of a forever kingdom, and he will reign on a forever throne. So again, it's, 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 it's profound here, the promise that is being made, that, that they, they will one day know the fulfillment of God's promise to them. And keep in mind, this is an interesting part of this, keep in mind who he's talking to. He's, he's talking to Israel. Israel has rejected the Davidic line. So remember, we're in a divided kingdom. The king of Israel is not a descendant of David. They've made up their own line. They're following their own king, just like they built their own altar and their own place of worship. So they abandoned the Davidic line. But now here we have this prophet from Judah with this last word telling them what's about to happen. There's going to be a unification of of God's people. And that there, there is going to be the rebuilding will involve a dismantling of what is a divided kingdom, and it will be a reestablishment of the Davidic line. Again, we know that's going to be fulfilled in Jesus himself. Now, I, I do want to note maybe a couple of points of application here, because I think beyond just that theological reality of what's being promised in verse 11 about a messianic kingdom to come, I think there are two truths we can take away from this, and I think you got blanks here. So number one, and you, they're, both of them are on the screen at the same time. One, one thing that I think is so significant about how this promise is made, and I find this really profound, and I, and I hope and pray we find this really encouraging. Judgment comes because of sin and disobedience. In other words, the judgment that comes upon Israel is because of their unfaithful actions. But did you notice God's promise of restoration comes with no condition? On that day, when you people finally get straight, I will raise it. On that day, when you stop acting insane and do what I've told you to do, on that day, when you finally get your act together and obey, it's not what he says. 
In fact, I, I read it. You can read it. I, I can even give you a Hebrew text if you want to read that. There's no condition. This, this is a profound statement of God's grace and mercy. Restoration will come not on the basis of some kind of reward for good behavior. It is God's grace and mercy. Judgment is, comes because of actions that preceded it. Grace is this free gift of God. And so it's profound. And then I think there's a second takeaway. Despite the weakness of God's people, we can trust God will complete His work in us. So, so not only seeing this work of grace, we can be assured that He who began a good work in you will bring it forward to completion in the day, in the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, but make no mistake about it, between now and that day, that can be a rocky road, right? There can be some bumps, some bruises, some ups, and some downs. But a promise like this reminds us, again, God's salvation. God has not saved me because I've earned it. And my final fulfilled salvation is not the reward for good behavior. It's not what he's doing. Now, just so you don't think, though, just just let's be careful here. This should motivate us, though, right? There's then nothing wrong with seeing this promise as motivating us to live faithfully, to obey, to love God. Of course, it should motivate us to do this. At the same time, we should recognize God's going to save me because it's an expression of His glorious grace. And He's going to save me to the end. We will persevere and endure because that's what God's saving work accomplishes. And so, Despite weaknesses we might see, and even in the church, right? I mean, we recognize there are weaknesses in the church, but we can trust that there there is going to be a restoration back to full strength and power. All right, let me give you one more, and then we'll we'll conclude with this, and this one will just take a minute-ish. All right, number two. So the first, what are you all doing? You don't have anything else to do? All right, so... So the first feature, it's a messianic kingdom, and number two, it's a global kingdom. It's a global kingdom. This is another one of those times where I'd love to have been on, you know, had a video to see the reaction of the powerful people in Israel when then God says, though they should have known this because this isn't the first time it shows up, but when he says something like this, verse 12, now, why, why is this going to happen? Why is God going to do this thing? Why is God bringing in this messianic kingdom? Is it because he wants Israel to rise to power and dominate the planet? Verse 12. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. This is going to happen not only because God's made a promise promise to the faithful remnant of Israel, but God has also said, I'm going to do this thing because I'm not just interested in saving Jews. I'm going to save every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's who I'm saving people out of. The word Edom there. So so there's an interesting little interplay going on. First, the word Edom is a form of the word Adam, which means mankind. 
So this is really the brilliance of using this word. So on the one hand, what he's saying, there there will be a remnant that will be possessed, meaning saved and secured and, and, and redeemed and restored. There'll be a remnant out of mankind. And then he goes on to talk about Gentiles. But then the word Edom also brings up the actual nation, right? The Edomites, one of the, along with like Egyptians, Philistines, Edomites stand as one of the perennial enemies of Israel. Chapter 1 of Amos, we have a declaration of judgment from God on Edom. So this is not unintentional, right? That here we have this imagery, not only of, 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 this, of this being a word that speaks to mankind, but, but also even out of those that were described as, as utterly pagan and violent. And God is still going to save people out of, out of the nations. So it is interesting that this, this final promise is not just about a Messiah for Israel. It is about a Messiah for the nations. Again, this shouldn't have come as a surprise to Israel. It's not like that's the first time it's shown up. I mean, all the way back in Genesis, God told Abram that, that, that from him would come a seed that would be a blessing to the nations. We have the psalmist saying, let the nations be glad because of the redeeming work of God. This is, this is, not, this is not a foreign concept, though they seem to have lost sight of it. So all, even back here in the Old Testament, God is promising there's going to be a work of redemption beyond the national borders of Israel that will include every tribe, tongue, and nation. By the way, just so you know that that's exactly how this text is to be interpreted, is our final thing, I I want you now to take your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 15. It's important, we haven't done this with every single little time it has shown up, but these minor prophets, I mean, a lot of Old Testament passages show up in the New Testament, but I, I have never really appreciated just how often the minor prophets show up And that clearly the New Testament authors and or preachers knew the minor prophets way better than we did, uh, than we do, (laughs) because they do seem to quote them a lot. And so here in Acts chapter 15, as you're turning there, this this is, you know, this is really the moment, this is a critical moment in church history, Uh, everything about the church could crumble at this point. This is a serious controversy. Because as a result of missionary endeavors, Gentiles are getting saved, and it's created no small amount of conflict. And you have some saying, well, in order for these Gentiles to become part of the church, they also have to become a part of Judaism. That they have to, they have to follow Mosaic law, in particular ritual law. They, they have to be circumcised. They, they don't get in otherwise. There were, there were those who were advocating for this. And then, of course, you had those like Paul who were saying, absolutely not, add one thing to the gospel and you've wrecked all of the gospel. Christ is sufficient to save. It is, it is grace alone, faith alone, right? This, this, is, the, this is the means of, of salvation. And so this council is called to settle the conflict. It's convened by James, right? The pastor of the first church, ha, the the the, the man who really has, I mean, a lot of pastors can have difficult jobs. I would, this, this was the guy who had the most difficult job of any pastor in all the world. All right, forever. There's no doubt this was a tricky deal figuring this out. And he had thousands and thousands of, I mean, he was a megachurch before megachurches were way cool. All right? 
And so James at this council then, they're, they're having this conversation about what, what to do. And then, then notice then what, what it says in verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. All right, saying, in other words, saying, look, we've got the signs to demonstrate. Salvation is working among the Gentiles just like it is among the Jews, without anybody having to do anything Jewish to get it. And so then, verse 13, and after they had become silent... James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agreed, just as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Isn't that not amazing? (laughs) Of all the things that James could have quoted, and what I want to ask James one day is, did that just come off the top of your head? Because how many of you in conversation have rattled off a verse from Amos, all right? Maybe you have, all right? But really, for the most part, that's not going to be our go-to Old Testament thing. Not even about salvation, right? But this, is, this is what he goes to. And this, is a, this then indicates for us, yes, this is exactly what Amos is promising. That this is, a, this is a promise of the inclusion of the Gentiles. That centuries before all of this, that a promise was made that God's kingdom would be a global kingdom wasn't just going to be reserved for those who were Jews or who would then take upon themselves Jewish identity, but instead is something which is global. Now, I think there's a takeaway for this. So one more blank to fill in. And that, that is this. <clears throat> Go on to the next slide. No matter how bleak our day looks, how unbelieving people seem to be, God is still saving people. I think this is important for us to remember. And listen, I, I don't know if you can tell this, but I can be as cynical and I can be cynical and snarky sometimes. I don't know if that comes across, all right? It may not. I hold it well. I hide it well. And it can sound like, it, you know, well, this, let's circle the wagons. This is a done deal. Uh, judgment's coming and uh, let's just hold on till Jesus comes. The truth is a passage like Amos 9 reminds me God's plan is a plan to save Gentiles. And since the the fullness of the kingdom in all of its physical and material reality has not yet been established, then I can only assume God is still calling men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so this, this means the gospel still works. God is still saving people all over. No matter how hard hearts seem to be, that doesn't mean every heart is that way. And even those hearts that may seem to be far from Him, God can save even the worst of sinners. 
And I think we need to make sure that as we continue to live in days that often feel bleak and dark and chaotic, that that does not stop the gospel from saving people. And we should also then remind ourselves, success in evangelism is not limited to somebody positively responding to that gospel. Successful evangelism is sharing the gospel. Because I don't save anybody. You don't save anybody. They don't even save themselves. And so why not, with boldness and courage, declare to the end of our days, Jesus saves. Because he's still saving people to the ends of the earth. Messianic kingdom, global kingdom. All right, next week, we'll finish up Amos with the final two. Look at two more features of this glorious kingdom to come. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for gathering your people. We thank you again for this time in prayer, this time in your word. It has been a blessing to be with God's people and, and to consider and reflect on your word. And we thank you for these truths, these truths that encourage the heart, that there is a greater plan, that there is a greater glory to come, that you are in control, and that indeed all of these promises will be fulfilled. And so let us live faithfully, let us persevere and endure, and let us be faithful to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to a world that needs it and is still responding to it. I thank you for these who've come tonight. Thank you for their willingness to be a part of this time. I pray that they would know your manifest presence in their lives, leading and guiding them in the days to come. Grant them wisdom as they fulfill the roles you've given to them and that it might be all for your glory. We ask that you gather your people back together again that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.